0: Welcome to The Sober Effect, a show that looks at the positives of sobriety, the dangers of alcohol, and the many people who are affected by it. I'm Kate.
1: And I'm Steph. The ripple effect of alcohol is far-reaching, and those are the stories you'll hear on The Sober Effect. So episode 13, we have Catherine. She has the most incredible story. The way she tells it, it's very emotional, but it's it's just a story though of like resilience. And, you know, she lost everything, everything, and came back.
0: I mean, she's sort of exactly the kind of person that we're always talking about, Steph, in that we're saying we're these kind of middle-aged women in suburbia drinking daily. It's accepted, it's encouraged, you actually feel weird when you don't do it. But when something starts going wrong and it becomes too much of a habit, her story is the perfect example of how society turns on you. It's almost like a film, isn't it? You can imagine really this is. on the big screen. Yeah. Um, I've never, ever heard a story quite like it. And we were both in tears during the interview, weren't we? we were, it was. It was yeah. incredibly sad. So yeah, get your tissues ready, everyone. This is this is not an easy one to listen to, but it is quite incredible and she is an absolute firecracker. I think she's just fantastic. I do too. Let's hear
1: from Catherine about losing it all because of alcohol.
2: I started drinking normally. I feel like I was just a very normal drinker, as normal as anybody could be. I could have a couple of glasses of wine here and there. I certainly wasn't an everyday drinker. And then as life started to get a little bit more complicated, my alcohol consumption started going up. And I was probably, I would say, 30 when my relationship with alcohol took a turn. And it wasn't an abrupt turn or anything like that. It would have started creeping up on me. And I went from being kind of that average, like normal drinker to literally not being able to stop. And I didn't know why I was doing it. Life was just getting harder. My children were small. I had three children under the age of six and started to use alcohol to cope. I mean, it was five o'clock. My husband was traveling for work or just wasn't home and I knew that it was time that I could start drinking. I was stressed all the time. It was little kids at my house, little kids everywhere. I was all alone. There was nobody there to help me. And I and I wasn't handling it. I didn't have any family around. Instead of going to anyone really and saying, I'm overwhelmed. I have a baby, a toddler, and one who's just a little bit older than a toddler. And I'm not coping very well. I just, I found it in the bottle, man. There was a huge liquor cabinet next to me. And every time, I poured a drink. I felt better. I felt better right away. And I thought, gosh, you know, I don't need to tell anyone about my struggle. Nobody needs to know that I'm not this happy, bounce around, bubbly, joyful woman all the time. And that's who I was before I started drinking. It's who I naturally am. And thank God it's who I am again today. But I was losing her. She was she was gone. I mean, she she didn't really exist at that time anymore. I was, I was slowly losing her to this bottle and I didn't care because the whiskey, whiskey was my drink of choice. Wine was only what I would have in public because it was acceptable and I could hold on to a, a beautiful balloon glass of red wine and walk around as though it was the only one that I was drinking all night when really, you know, I was at the bar taking shots when you weren't looking. And then I was walking around with my glass. But, you know, all of those things were easy, easy secrets to keep. You know, your whiskey doesn't tell your secrets. You tell your secrets. So I was able to keep them for a long time. And as I progressed through the disease, it just got worse and worse.
1: At what point was the cat out of the bag as far as Catherine has a problem and people know now? So my
2: youngest son was just getting ready to turn two. And my husband had noticed that I had developed a pretty significant, at least home, alcohol consumption problem. He also knew that when I was getting ready to go out in the evenings, when he and I would go out, you know, on dates or uh, to parties or whatever, that I was drinking way beforehand. I mean, if we had an eight o'clock dinner reservation, I would start getting ready at four because that meant that I could take wine or whiskey into the shower because it was totally fine to pregame. So I would do that. And he started to notice, I would, I would guess it'd be about six months in of my extra consumption that I was consuming more than he was and more than other people. And um, he gave me a, a couple of warnings. What are you, what are you doing? But there was never any concern of what's the problem? Why are you doing this? And I, didn't want to say there was a problem. I felt like saying there was a problem meant that I was weird or sick or mentally ill or crazy or something like that. And I didn't want any of those labels. And I didn't want the label of an alcoholic because even in the circle that I was running in, people talk about alcoholics. People say, "Oh my, well, you know, she's an alcoholic or, you know, give that kid a break. Her mom's an alcoholic or, you know, dad's got a drinking problem and things like that. I didn't want to be that didn't want to be that person. Certainly, I would never chime in when people were talking like that about other people. But I knew exactly what I was, there was no way I wanted anyone else to know. But I'd say it was about six months when he started to figure out like, wow, she's got a real problem. But again, it wasn't she's got a problem, we need to figure out what this is a symptom of why is she doing this? It was, you better stop, you better stop now. And if you don't I'm leaving and I'm taking your kids. And that kind of an ultimatum very obviously didn't work for me because it went from bad to worse and it went fast, really fast. Um, and, And that's when everybody else started figuring out. It was probably two months after that. So maybe about eight months into my really strong addiction where I was drinking starting in the late afternoon to the wee hours of the morning. And again, my husband was gone most of the time. So the kids were either in bed or getting ready for bed and going to bed. And and that's when I was doing the majority of my drinking. So it was about eight months in and we were at a dinner party. It was my husband and me and two other couples, great friends of ours. We had been friends for years. And I had a friend who was speaking to me at this dinner party. And he said, you know, Kat, some of the girls are talking about you. And I said, what girls, what are you talking about? What are they talking about? And he said, well, so-and-so went up to so-and-so. Last week at a dinner party that we were at, and said, Oh my God, have you seen Catherine? She looks terrible. And someone said, Oh, well, she is obviously an alcoholic. She obviously has a serious drinking problem. And I said, What? These they were talking, they were talking ab- about me. And he said, Yes, honey. So you need to know that they are not your friends. You need to stop talking to them. You need to stop telling them what's going on in your life, because they are talking about you. And I'll never forget it. I mean, it was one of the most humiliating experiences of my life. I got right on the phone and I called this woman and I said, What the hell is this for real? I'm I'm at a dinner party. And people are telling me that you're talking about me at other parties. Like, I thought we were friends. And she immediately said, Yeah, you know, I feel terrible about it. I never should have said anything like that. But I'm really concerned about you. And that's when I knew that my problem was public and i still thought it was pretty private i thought i had been able to kind of keep it under wraps but but i hadn't and um and that was when i found out that everybody else kind of knew too was at a dinner party i knew that if i didn't get a handle on my drinking problem that i would lose my husband and i would lose my children and of course i did
1: yeah do you want to tell us some more about that because a lot of people will hear, okay, you were told you're going to lose your marriage. You're going to lose your kids, but you continued to drink. Right. And some people will have yes. a really hard time wrapping their brain around that. Right. But that, that yeah. is how sick you really were. So do you want to go into that a little bit more?
2: So after the dinner party situation, my husband said to me, listen, you need to get your act together. You need to stop this. You're, you're embarrassing me. You're embarrassing our family. And I was perfectly willing to cop to that and to accept that. I still didn't realize that this was a true disease. I felt like I was mean and bad and ugly and terrible and that I deserved all of the words that were coming my way and that I deserved to be talked about. I thought that I was earning all of that on my own. And the more I heard about myself, the more I drank because the drinking would just take it away. Honestly, I I can't, unless i believe unless you're an alcoholic and unless you've had similar experiences with alcohol you can't possibly understand the feeling of someone's talking about you you get a phone call or a text saying so-and-so is talking about you or uh, so-and-so is saying you're going to lose your marriage or your husband and your husband was out talking about you and all these kind of things and you know i was a 30 year old woman deeply insecure with a very serious drinking problem so i thought okay Everyone is telling me that I'm going to lose my husband. And if I lose him, then I'm going to lose my children too. And he had assured me, if you don't stop this, if you don't stop this drinking, and I mean now I'm taking these kids and I'm out and you may or may not see them again. So figure it out or we're gone. So I reached out to my dad um, who I've been close with, extremely close with my entire life. And I, I reached out to him and I said, daddy, I think I have a drinking problem. And he agreed with me. He didn't necessarily agree saying, yes, I think you do too. But he said, okay, well, what what can we do about that? And my husband had been speaking to my mom very frequently about my, my drinking problem. I had no idea. They were behind the scenes talking about what a monster I was. And all of the things that I was doing. Some of them were true and some of them were not. What I didn't know is my husband had one foot out the door already and my alcoholism and drinking was a beautiful excuse for him to just peace and bail. So I started this outpatient rehab program. It was seven weeks. And my husband at the time said, Listen, if you can go to this program and you can get sober through it, your mom and dad and I will do the the sober counseling and we'll be able to support you through this. And hopefully we can kick this disease and move along with our lives. And I thought, okay, it's outpatient therapy. I can do this. I really do want to get well. I don't want to drink like this anymore. And so I did it. I went for seven weeks and I was actually successful when I was there. I didn't drink the entire time I was there. I was there from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. five days a week. Really 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Those are prime drinking hours, right? Particularly for moms, like especially for me. That was the time when like everything's hitting the fan. These little kids are going crazy. They're tired. I'm tired. I've been playing tic-tac-toe and hopscotch and jumping in the pool all day long i'm tired and i'm done and you know i think losing that stress at the same time so not only did i get to go to rehab outpatient and find like-minded people that were sitting around with me i didn't have to do the part of my day that was so so stressful my beautiful wonderful children who i would have given my life for i i couldn't cope i couldn't i couldn't handle bedtime by myself i couldn't do these things by myself i was failing and I was way too afraid to tell anybody that I was failing. And so when I went to this group, when I went to this outpatient rehab, it gave me time for to sit with my thoughts and to start trying to understand and figure out, why am I doing this? I wasn't a monster in there. I wasn't this horrible, disgusting woman in there. I was just a human being who had a really big problem. And it was wonderful. I really, really did relish my time in there. And so I completed that program and I stayed sober after that for only a few weeks. Unfortunately, I fell right back into these terrible habits. And I know that people don't understand, you know, they're they're saying, well, she knew she was gonna lose her husband and that he was gonna take those kids. He He had told her that, he had assured her that, that was a promise she picked up again and again it's it's a disease there is a devil in the bottle and people don't understand that and when you have this disease and when stuff is going wrong and when you're three weeks sober and you don't have that group anymore all you can do is go to an AA meeting and again this was 12 years ago when I was trying to get sober we didn't have any other real supports other than AA it was a 12-step program and I didn't believe in all of the 12 steps it wasn't all totally for me but I was told and I was taught if you don't do it this way, you will fail. And you know what, that way wasn't working for me, I was going to the AA meetings, I wasn't really vibing, I couldn't figure out kind of where my place was, I had lost my people, my people being the people in the outpatient therapy group. And my husband was gone again, traveling, it was just me, I was giant black sheep wearing, you know, something sparkling on my head so everyone could see me when I was coming from 600 feet away. Um, and and so I, I drank, I I couldn't cope. And I started drinking again. And um, this time, I progressed very, very quickly. And within uh, six months, I was in my first inpatient rehab. And that one lasted 30 days. So
0: after you started drinking again, then you, you had three weeks off. What happened with your husband's ultimatum at that point before you went into rehab? Did he say, I'll give you another chance?
2: No, I was never really offered another chance. I think that the first time that I failed right after outpatient rehab, right after my group ended, that was really the end. I I was going to try to hold on to any shred of the marriage that I could beg, pleading, I was going to do anything that I possibly could to keep this man so that I could keep my children. But he was, he was out and I just had no idea. There was no chance that he was going to stick around. And, and I, I think that my family agreed with him. Everything in my experience in this whole journey was ultimatums and threats. And if you don't do this, then this is going to happen to you. I didn't have the experience where someone came up to me and said, listen, baby, what is wrong? There has to be something wrong. Why are you doing this to yourself? Because what you're doing is crazy and it is crazy. I mean, you know that you're gonna lose everything, but you pick up anyway and you start drinking again anyway. I mean, it's diabolical, it's crazy. So
1: at this point, has he left or is he just checked out? Like you guys are still in the house together, (laughs) but he's just mentally checked out. Like he's just done.
2: It was done way before I knew it was done. I hated myself. I knew that if I wasn't totally worthless, I was very nearly worthless. And I had been assured that. I mean, I was a wasted piece of trash. I was all used up. I wasn't good for anything anymore. And nobody had told me that, but that's what I felt. Nothing was working for me. And I don't blame anyone for saying, if you don't, then you this. Because I think their major concern, number one, was the safety of the children. I would I would say, I would hope that's the truth. But honestly, I think it was the villainization of me, the villainization of Catherine was absolutely essential. And you know, I bought it. I bought it all. I was bad. I was disgusting. I was finished. And what do you do with that? You know, I mean, I'm trying so hard. I really, really was. And I was trying to go to meetings and I was trying to talk about things. But when I got home from a meeting, what's my husband doing? He's sitting on the couch with a glass of whiskey. How was it? (laughs) I can't talk to my family about it because they don't really get it. And should I call one of these people that I don't know? Because I have this list of phone numbers, but I don't really know them and they don't know me. And do they really care? And I can't really call any of my friends because they don't really want to know. And I'm not trying to bring them down with my problems. And so it just became this really vicious cycle.
0: So did you check yourself into this, the, the rehab center then after the three weeks and you started drinking again, did you say, right, I need to do this because my marriage is over? Clearly. I'm potentially going to lose my children. I need to sort this out for me. And and is that how it happened?
2: No, I was I was sicker than that. I was sicker than that. There was no point where I said, "Well, until the very end, and we'll get there." But I wasn't ready yet. I'd been it had been three weeks, and I had been caught drinking again. And my husband said, "Look, I just caught you drinking again. So now it's another rehab." And I said, "Well, let me try." Just let me try out patient one more time, because as sick as this is, I kept saying, I can't leave my babies for 90 days. I just or 30 days even I can't or two weeks. I cannot. I'm a stay at home mom. I have these three little children. I'm with them all the time. And even though coping with raising three little ones on my own was part of the problem, part of the reason that I was Drinking, they were still all of my reasons. I still couldn't lose them. And so I I called my dad and dad said, Yeah, yeah, I've heard you're drinking again, buddy. Like, let's try this outpatient rehab one more time. So they were gonna give me a chance to do this outpatient rehab one more time. And in this outpatient rehab, you got three strikes. And that meant that within the seven weeks, I was gonna go to the same program that I had already completed once. I didn't drink at all for the first seven weeks that I was there. So this time around, my disease had progressed as we know that it does if you continue drinking. This is how sick I was. I went into the second seven week outpatient rehab dent, knowing that I could drink twice before I got kicked out. So knowing that if I had a really bad day or if my husband at the time said something so awful that I really couldn't, I mean, some of the stuff that he was saying to me, it just made me want to die. I, I hated myself. I, I already, I already hated myself. And so when someone else is telling you and confirming you are as bad as you think you are, but not only are you, as bad as you think you are, everyone else thinks you're this bad too. So I knew, okay, I can go in and I can drink twice. So if I have one of these really bad days that I could still drink and I got caught drinking and my husband said, you know, I've already called Michael was the name of one of my therapists in the group. And he said, I've already called Michael. He knows that you drank last night. He's, you have to have a meeting with him today at four o'clock. So I went in for my meeting with Michael, and I knew that it was just going to be a pith tis, Catherine, you know, and at at that time, they weren't calling that a relapse, they would just call it a lapse. And I thought, well, a lapse isn't so bad, because a lapse means it's just a lapse in judgment. And that means it's only one day. So they called that a lapse. That doesn't mean that you have relapsed into full blown alcoholism. That means that you've just had a little bump in the road. Come to find out later, that was not a good thing to teach alcoholics but uh but that's totally what I thought so I went in for my meeting with Michael and I said I know I'm really sorry I messed up but but I do have two more chances right and he said no honey no you don't have any more chances they're sending you to rehab and so that's where I found out in the rehab group in a private meeting that I was heading for my first inpatient rehab which was supposed to be 30 days and go and try to get sober and I did and that That rehab was kind of a joke, it's since closed. I mean, I was able to pretty much do whatever I wanted there. I didn't drink there obviously, but it was 30 days of sort of like a beautiful country camp-like setting. I was riding horses and going to therapy and working out. Basically, it was a sober vacation. I mean, it was great. I had been a stay-at-home mom and now, you know, my kids could come and visit on the weekends and my dad would come and see me. My mom and I weren't speaking at that time anymore. And um, so I did that for 30 days. And when I came out of that, I said to my husband, okay, I've I've, I've done that for 30 days. Now do you think you can give me the all clear where if I stay sober this time, we can remain together, we'll keep the marriage, I'll keep the kids, and I'll just be good from now on, I promise. And I'm I'm quite certain that I used used that word. I will be good from now on, I promise, if you can just tell me that that we'll remain intact. And he said... No, I can't I can't do that. We're we're just gonna have to see how things go from here because you know, I just I just don't know if you're gonna be able to do that. Never mind the fact that on the way to that rehab, on the way to this first inpatient rehab, my now ex-husband asked me if we wanted to stop at the grocery store so that I could get a bottle of wine to drink it on the way, because it would be the last time that I would be able to drink. And I knew it was a setup because he had done this to me before. And I knew that he would then call my mom and say, you'll never guess that she had wine in the car and she drank all the way. So I actually declined that invitation from him because I had already been set up so many times before with that kind of offer. So yeah, there that that happened. And uh, I came back from that 30 days in rehab. Guys, I, I don't even know how long I was sober, maybe two weeks. I mean, the same cycle just kept happening and happening. And I was doing everything I can to desperately try to hang on to the marriage and while you're doing that I was so so desperate I wanted these babies so so badly and again I wasn't learning any real coping skills I wasn't getting to the bottom of what I was actually drinking for what was I trying to get away from or or run to what was I looking for whatever it was I wasn't finding it I certainly wasn't getting it from my from my husband or my mom I mean Know my dad was behind me, but again, he didn't know what to do. And so that sobriety didn't last long either. And after that came the full the full 90 days. After that rehab, I ended up with nothing. After after I messed up in that rehab, my parents decided I must not be an alcoholic. I must be mentally ill. So it's gotta be a mental illness because I keep drinking and they can't figure out why and I'm losing everything. Husband, children, friends, family members, losing everybody. Why can't she stop drinking? Oh, I got it. This was my mother. She's crazy. She's mentally ill. We need to send her to a psychiatric facility because she's, she's, just, she's mad. And my dad said, I don't know. I mean, do you really think that we should send her to a, a psychiatric facility? And my mother said, yes, I do. They have one up at Harvard. We'll send her to the psychiatric facility up there and decide what it is that's actually wrong with her because nobody drinks this much because they're normal. So she's obviously crazy. So off I went to a psych ward for two weeks up in Boston. And I got there and I was like, what am I actually doing here? I mean, the people I was around, they were seeing things and hearing things. And I wasn't. I i was drinking things. And so I spent two weeks there. And this was a, a place where you could check yourself in and check yourself out. My daddy had begged me to check myself in there. Please trust me, honey, please. You know, I don't want you to go here. And I know you don't want to go here. But mom thinks maybe you're crazy. So will you just do this for me? And apparently my family was I don't know if they were taking actual bets, but it was kind of taking bets if I was going to show up at the airport to meet my dad to go to the psych ward. I did show up because I gave my dad my word and I knew that my dad wasn't going to do anything to hurt me. I knew that my dad wasn't against me. And I knew that he wasn't manipulating and trying to do things behind my back. And I knew that he wasn't actively trying to take my children. And so I trusted him and I trusted his judgment. And if he thought this was a place that I needed to be, then I was gonna go because he loved me and I knew that he loved me. And at that time in my life, there were four people that I knew loved me enough to care if I lived or died. And there were three little children and my dad and that was it. And not to say that some of my very close friends didn't love me that much too, they did, but. I wasn't able to let them in to the big secret that was going on. There was no way these guys were already living their own lives and I didn't want them to have to suffer with me and feel badly for me. I, you know, so I, so I didn't, didn't tell anyone. So I met my dad at the airport and we went and I was there for two weeks when I decided I shouldn't be here. And there were some of the therapists there that, that agreed that I wasn't crazy and they agreed that I was an alcoholic, but they thought, maybe hey, this is a good place for you because you can dry out here and we don't, we don't allow alcohol here. But again, they encouraged my mother, we'll she should stay here. And I guess she should, I think it was something like 20 grand a week. Well, no kidding. You want me to stay? Holy cow. Like, Hey, mom and dad, just keep handing it over. How long you want me for 60 days, 90 a year. Super. Let's just keep working to pay for Catherine's rehabs. Okay. I mean, it was a total joke. So after about two weeks of that nonsense, I was like, I'm not crazy. This is not working for me. Oh, I have to leave here. So I checked myself out and it was actually really funny. They kept your suitcases locked in the basement of this facility because even though you can check yourself in and check yourself out, they didn't want you to be able to do that. So they kept things like your driver's license and your suitcases and all of that kind of stuff, like locked in the basement. And then you had your room where you had all of your tidy things, but your documents, anything that you would need, you could not have. And I thought, okay. So I decided to devise a plan. I had to get the hell out of there. I knew that I wasn't crazy, um, but I knew that my family would keep me there for as long as this place wanted me there because again, they were deciding to trust the professionals. Not a bad idea, but this was not a rehab center. I asked if I could go down to the basement to get my razor and just like a scene from a movie, as soon as they opened that door, to where my things were, my razor, my suitcases and things like that. I literally ran down the basement stairs, got my suitcase and left.
0: The way you've been treated is just horrible. So you've come out and, and where are you in your kind of personal life now? Are you living at the family home? Are your kids still around?
2: My husband at the time said, we we're not going to do this anymore, We're going to take the kids, and I'm going to leave. And I said, No, no, sh- you know, surely, surely, that's not really, really what's going to happen. And he said, Yes, it was. And we, he met me at a coffee shop one day, he said, I'm leaving, I'm taking the kids, we are going to sell the house and and you're not welcome to come, you're just going to have to figure out what what it is that you're going to do. And that's what happened. So he sold the house, and I was given some money from my part of the house and my ex-husband said, okay, well, you've got your money and I've got the kids and we're moving along. And one day, if you get healthy, we'd really love to have you be a part of our family if if you're able to do that. So I knew that my mom thought that was the best idea and she had been supporting my ex-husband financially and otherwise the entire time that I was struggling with this and and they were A double team. She wanted my kids. He didn't want me. And it was the easiest play. It was it was perfect. I mean, they were this power couple of let's protect the kids and keep them away from Catherine. And it was all supposed to be coming from a good place. But I don't really think in hindsight, any of it was. So they went to live with my parents, and I didn't have a place to go. I couldn't ask any friends to live with them because that would have been completely humiliating. Um, Like I hadn't been humiliated enough already, but I wasn't gonna go live with somebody. I wasn't gonna ask somebody for a place to live. I didn't have any money. Our house was being sold. I had been a stay-at-home mom. I had nothing. I was completely financially unprepared for this. I didn't have anything, so I didn't really have anywhere to go. I had a few thousand dollars in my bank account. So I rented this house uh, sort of thing. It was sort of an apartment house, townhouse thing and thought, okay, so my family's gone. My dad still wants me to get sober. I can't really see my kids. My my mom and my ex-husband had decided that I would be allowed to go to my parents' house to visit with my children if I would blow into a breathalyzer and pass that and if my mom or my ex-husband or my dad or one of my siblings were there to supervise me with my children. So now I'm at the point where I can only be with my children if somebody else is around and babysitting me at the, at that time. Again, I haven't I haven't done anything so egregious. I I didn't kill anyone, drunk driving. I wasn't abusive. I've never you know hit my children. I, I there was nothing like that. I wasn't one of these horribly abusive people that you see on Dateline. I was literally. A freaking sad housewife who couldn't cope with any part of my life in any way. I wasn't getting any real therapies at the time. And so I I rented this, this one little place and uh, knew that, I would probably be able to see my children maybe once or twice a week, depending on my behavior. And what that meant was sober or not, if I were impolite or rude or otherwise nasty to my soon to be ex-husband or mother, my privileges were gone. I was a child again, and I was treated like one. I was treated like an incompetent moron who was problematic, sick, and dangerous, very dangerous. Um, And that's what they were telling my kids. When my kids said, why isn't mom coming with us? My mother and my ex-husband said, your mother is very sick. She's very, very sick. And when she gets well, then then maybe you can can see her again, you know, the ways that you want to see her and things like this. So my children were being actively kept from me. There's there's just no other other way to put it. And uh, so I thought, okay, I've got this crappy apartment living about an hour away from my kids. It was the only thing I could afford. They were in a very affluent area and I couldn't afford to be in there. I had no job. Like I said, I was a stay-at-home mom. I had no money. The sale of the house was pending. Um, I couldn't ask anyone for anything else. My dad was doing for me what he could, but again, he was married to my mom, and and he respected her and loved her to a point where, as he should have, he's since passed. But he needed to support his partner while at the same time supporting his daughter, and he was put in a very difficult situation. It breaks my heart to this day. But I was in this place, and. Uh, I was failing. I was drinking every single day. And I knew that when I would get to go see my children, that all I had to do was pass a breath test that day. I had absolutely no idea what my future looked like. I could, there was no way I could think more than two days ahead because it was too painful. I didn't have my kids anymore. I I couldn't think that far ahead. I knew that I was an alcoholic. I knew that I couldn't get sober. I knew that nobody else thought I could get sober. They were positive that I was going to quote, die drunk, And, uh, and I kind of thought that I was too. And I just didn't see a way out. So I was slowly drinking myself literally to death in this crappy uh, little townhouse. And um, there was one day it had been about two weeks since I'd seen my children. And I'd said to my mom, please, I I, want to come for a visit. And well, we're just not really sure. We're just not really sure, you know, when the best time would be. And again, they, they knew that I was still drinking. And what did I have to hope for? I, I didn't have any hope. Everything was falling apart. My, I was in, now in the middle of a divorce. He was for sure gonna get full custody because whether or not everything he, and my, he was telling my mom was true was completely irrelevant. Everybody was gonna believe it. I was a lying alcoholic. I had hidden liquor. I had said that I wasn't drinking when I was drinking. Um, you know, I lied so much about my alcohol consumption and about my drinking and my drinking behavior that anything that my ex-husband said people were going to take it as fact I mean because I was a crazy drunk so I, I mean I only found out years later some of the things that had been said they were really damaging to my dad and they weren't true but uh but anyway it was one night it was very late and I had this bottle of moonshine and I decided you know I'm never going to get these children back they're all against me and and not to play the woe is me card but it was obvious they wanted me out so that they could then start to rebuild the lives of these children kind of without me and they didn't want it to be without me or they said they didn't want it to be without me they said they wanted it to be with a healthy mother but again how i i need help I, i i'm failing i'm dying um I, I'm not getting better. I'm getting worse. And they basically washed, washed their hands of me and said, this is just not something that we're able to deal with anymore. And when you're able to get your stuff together, then you let us know. And then you can, you can see the kids and we'll set up a regular visitation schedule. But that was way too much for me all at once. Like, how am I supposed to do that? I can't stay sober for 24 hours. I can't, I cry all the time. I weighed something like, I don't even know if I weighed hundred pounds at that time. I was just literally slowly like, wasting away dying. There would be days where I wouldn't eat. Just I handle a vodka because the pain in my life was so incredibly severe, was so severe that I couldn't, I literally could not wake up and not start drinking because I was thinking about what is my daughter wearing to school right now. And I've been one of those moms, they were always in beautiful jumpers. Everything was monogrammed, biggest beautiful satin bow you've ever seen. I was so good. You know, and I was the mom that had decorated the most beautiful cupcakes, or for spirit week, you know, made something for the whole class to wear and volunteered all of my time. My entire life was based in them and all of my pride and all everything good I had ever done. It was in those children and they were gone and they were being told I was sick and I was being told, you can't come near them. Don't you dare come near them because you're a problem. You're dangerous and you're sick. You disgust us. And I disgusted myself and and i didn't really know where to go i was so lost that i had this uh, on the on the last on the last really really bad day it was um a bottle of it was a mason jar of moonshine and and y'all have to realize that i was in southeastern virginia so i mean virginia kentucky north carolina you can get moonshine anywhere and this wasn't This wasn't that stuff that you can buy in the grocery store that they call moonshine, because let me tell you all something. That's not moonshine. If you think of whiskey, like Wild Turkey 101, like the highest proof whiskey, take that and multiply it maybe times two or three. I mean, this stuff, they call it white lightning. It's clear and it's distilled clear. And it's like vodka times a thousand. I don't even know how to, it's, it's probably one of the deadliest poisons that you can ingest without actually dying. And what people do here, well, in the South anyway, is they pop like um, plums or peaches or strawberries into it. And then all those fruits like soak up all the alcohol. So then you can eat one strawberry and be wasted for an entire night, things like that. So I had this, uh, this Mason jar just filled with white lightning. It didn't even have any fruit in it. And I didn't care. I could drink, I could probably drunk uh, pure rubbing alcohol and it wouldn't have made a difference. I mean, as long as it took the pain away, I really didn't care what it tasted like. I wasn't drinking for fun anymore. I wasn't drinking for taste. I don't care what it is, just give it to me so that I can stop feeling what I'm feeling. And um, it was it was that last night that I decided I'm not going to get these kids back. Like there's been too much damage done. They think that I'm so bad. I. I And maybe I am so bad. Maybe they're all right. And it's not that I wanted to necessarily hurt myself. I just didn't want to do any of it anymore. And I really started to believe that my children would be better off if I just had never existed or if I were just wiped out completely because maybe my ex-husband would find a woman who wasn't as bad and mean and nasty as I was. And I didn't want my children to be raised by a nasty alcoholic mother. And, and I knew by that point, that's what I was. And that maybe I would never get better. And I just drank all this moonshine and prayed. I, I prayed to God before I started drinking. Just don't let me wake up anymore. I can't do another day. I just can't do one more minute. Nobody believes anything I say, even when I'm telling the truth and I need help and I don't know where to go and I don't know how to get it. And I can't live anymore without these kids. So please don't let me wake up. Like, just let me drink this and fall asleep and then go to heaven so that I can be gone away from here because I just couldn't live anymore. And I drank and I woke up and I called my dad the next morning and I said, Daddy, I think I'm going to die and I need help now. I need your help now. And I'm ready. And he said, okay, meet me at the hospital and let's go detox. Let's go to the hospital and let's go detox. And I said, okay. And he was an hour from where I was and the hospital was kind of a triangle. And he told me on the phone, he said, are you dressed right now? And I said, kind of. And he said, all you have to do is get on your clothes and maybe pack a bag if you can. And if you can't, that's okay. We'll work it out later, but you get your stuff together, honey, just get your clothes on and drive to the hospital. And I'll be right there. I'll be there to meet you. When I had just enough gas in my car to get there. I didn't have any money to get any more gas. Somehow I was able to get, you know, moonshine or whiskey or whatever, but I didn't have any money for gas. I didn't have any money for food. And um, my dad hadn't seen me in a few weeks because I wasn't allowed there. I, I met him there. I'd gotten sick all over myself all the way there. I was an hour away and, you know, I would drunk all this horrible, poison before that I was so ill and I just thrown up all over the front of my shirt and and down my pants and I pulled into the to the parking lot of the hospital and I saw my dad waiting there and he was so cheerful and he was just always just so effervescent he was smiling and he was waving at me just to show me he was there you know and that he was supporting me and he came over to the side of the car and he opened the door and he saw that I had been so sick and he said I'm so sorry dad you must hate me so much you must be so embarrassed I'm so sorry look at what you've look at what you've got now, I'm so sorry. And he told me, no, no, you don't need to be sorry. Honey, I've got you, you look good too, you look good. We need to change these clothes, but you look good. Just fine, did we bring any other clothes? And I said, yeah, they're in the back. And so we got into the back of my, I was driving the Jeep Grand Cherokee and we got out in the back of my Jeep and he helped me undress. So I was a baby at that point. I mean, I was just like a little child again. I had nothing left, my soul was gone, my spirit was gone. I was gone. I was a human being, but there was nothing else there. I mean, I was living and breathing and and I could do things, but there was absolutely no light in my life at all. Everything was dark and, and awful. And, and, um, and I got dressed and I went into the hospital with my dad and I was so sick. Um, and it took, I think, four days of detoxing. I had terrible DTs, delirium tremors. If people don't know what those are, I would see things I saw the thing that I saw the most was spiders. I saw big yellow spiders and, you know, they had me hooked up to an IV to try to, to get some liquid electrolytes back in my body. I had to take different medications to keep me from having seizures because my alcoholism had progressed to the point where they thought that if I were to only be medicated with, you know, electrolytes that I would seize and die. And I was on all of this medication. I was able to detox safely and Uh, stayed in that facility, I think it was for four days. And then right from there, I would go to 90 days and full on rehab. And it was, there was no negotiation, there was no question. My dad said, Is this something that you want to do? And I said, Yes. And he said, let's start looking at the different rehab options. And I said, Well, I want to be in Virginia, because at the time, that's where my children were, I said, "I, I have to I have to go to a rehab in Virginia because that's where my babies are, and they have to be able to come and visit. And there were two rehab centers that were considered excellent um, at the time. One was in California, and one happened to be in Virginia. And they were both private pay. Obviously, I mean, it, it's such a it's such a terrible pity that 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 happens, particularly here in the United States, because a lot of people can't pay for that. And so, what happens to them? They die. That's what happens to them. And public um, out. Uh, patient care for alcoholics here is an absolute joke. I still see it. it through the work that we're doing now, right? I mean, people are dying because we don't have adequate care for this disease. And I was one of those people. And I was very fortunate in the fact that I was able to choose my rehab. I could go wherever I wanted to go. And, um, and my dad, would, would pay for all of it. And he would pay for as long as I needed to be there and do whatever he could to save my life. And I did go there. This was a really great rehab where you were able to come and go during the day, as long as you were able to blow into the breathalyzer and prove that you'd been sober, you could come and go kind of as you please as long as it was more of a university type setting rehab. And that really worked for me because I, there were lots of like minded people in there um, as, as I was and we had similar life experiences. I was doing the 90 days in rehab and I had been six And during that time, I met this wonderful man who wanted to hang out with me and who thought that I was special and we weren't romantically involved, but I had a huge crush on this man. I had no business meeting anyone at that time. My God, look at my life. It was a complete disaster. But I'd have been about 30 into the 90 days and I had met this man and he was nice to me and he seemed to genuinely enjoy that I was, I was a, a human, a, a person. And uh, we got to know each other during that time and ended up falling madly in love with him, calling my dad, saying, I'm in love with this man. And my dad said, my God seriously, Catherine, do you really want me to have another stroke? I really don't know how much more. But honey, if you believe that this is the man for you, let's try this again. Let's try it. What else did I have to lose? Right? Nothing. So it turns out that it ended up being one of these, I mean, as as crazy as it sounds, it, it ended up being one of these amazing love stories. I ended up falling in love with this man. I did relapse one time during that time. And my husband now supported me through that and uh, was just glad to see me alive. He had some, he had experiences with alcoholism growing up. And so he saw in me when I was in rehab that there are there was hope that he knew something about alcoholism that I didn't. And it was that if you have love and support and real compassion, that that you actually have a shot. And that was something that I had experienced through my dad, love and support and compassion, but not on a regular basis. And I didn't ever have anyone say, Well, my dad, of course, was on a regular basis, but he had his own life. We were living in different cities. And what I figured out, what I came to figure out at the end of that time in rehab, and even though I did very briefly relapse, my husband, the one that I've been married to now, it's been 10 years, we've had two more boys, um, never gave up on me. And he said that he knew the first time he met me, all I needed was a chance. All I needed really was someone to say, I'm not gonna let this disease take you down. I don't believe you're bad. You shouldn't believe you're bad. Why do you believe this? Who's told you this? Why do you think these things? You're suffering from a terrible disease. And I'll tell you what, I love you so much that I'm not gonna let this thing take you down. There's something in you, Catherine. And he believed in me and he saw it. He said, you know that sparkle that your dad talks about? Cause I, my dad said when he was alive, I was born with a, with a twinkle in my eyes that I had a a secret, that I knew something. And my husband said the same thing. And he said, I see it. You think it's gone, but it's not. I see it. It's still there. And we're going to find it. We're going to bring it back. And we're going to get those kids back. And we're going to get it all back. And you know what? We did. And it took 18 months of fighting for custody. And it was hard. And I did it. And I got pregnant with our now eight-year-old and, um and I was sober, I, I ended up getting sober for the last time three three or four months before I got pregnant with my now eight-year-old and uh and I never drank again. And my husband, as I said, I think I said, we'll we'll have our 10year anniversary this year, knew that I I I there was still hope on the rise. there was still there was still something there. And honestly, I think I needed someone who knew that I could do it. and I needed someone who would say to me, I want you to know that you can do this. I'll have 10 years on January 4th of next year. And uh, and I, I just, I thank God every day for it. And I thank God that there was at least someone at the end. And there were people all along the way. I don't want to discount that. But my husband wanted me to get better. And he wanted me to live. And he wanted my children to have the mother that he knew that I could be again. And um, and he, he showed me that I wasn't everything that I had been told I was or even if I hadn't been told I was I believed I was and they confirmed that I was so yeah I, I got a, I got a second chance.
0: Thank you for listening. We really hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, we're just two women from opposite sides of the pond wanting to bring awareness around the negative effects of alcohol. We are not licensed therapists or doctors. If alcohol is causing any mental or physical health issues, please seek professional help.
1: Please be sure to give us a follow so you don't miss future episodes. If you think our podcast could help someone you know, please be sure to share it. Also, leaving a five-star review will help The Sober Effect reach more people like you.
0: The music for this show was produced and recorded by Pearl and Thumbelina Jim of the wonderful Charm Jar Music. More information can be found in our show notes.